Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Veronica Root Martinez, Professor of Law and Director of the Program on Ethics, Compliance, and Inclusion at the University of Notre Dame School of Law. We'll be discussing her article, The Compliance Process, which was recently published in the Indiana Law Journal. As usual, I'll include a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Veronica, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Andrew, thank you so much for inviting me to be a guest. I'm super excited to talk with you today. Well, we're excited to talk with you as well about the compliance process. Before we jump into your article, maybe to set the stage a little bit, what is the role of a compliance program today in in corporate America, whether from the perspective of the firm or from its regulators? And I guess one way to, to phrase that is why do firms care about compliance and why do their regulators care about compliance? And are those two things related? I'm sure. So, Regulators see compliance programs as an important part of a firm's efforts to engage in effective self-policing. Most believe that firms are in the best position to detect misconduct within their own ranks, and compliance programs are seen as an integral part of the self-policing mission. It is typically seen as, I suppose, inefficient to expect a regulator to engage in the type of enforcement activity that would be required to allow it to detect misconduct on its own within firms. Additionally, by transferring the obligation to prevent or detect misconduct to firms themselves, it allows the firms, as opposed to the public, to bear the cost of self-policing. For firms, uh, compliance programs serve a few different roles. Uh, I guess I'll mention two. First, if you have a compliance program that is deemed effective and wrongdoing occurs, it is much more likely that the firm will be given mitigation credit when a sanction is being levied. Mm -hmm. In some areas, uh, like enforcement of the FCPA, an effective compliance program may even assist in the determination to decline to prosecute a case altogether. So there are pretty big incentives, purposeful incentives for firms to engage in compliance programs. Um, But second, the compliance program is an opportunity, I think, to communicate expectations to a firm's workforce. So I personally define compliance pretty broadly to include compliance with legal and regulatory requirements, industry standards, and a firm's own internal norms and procedures. Compliance could be structured in a way that just looks at legal and regulatory requirements, but almost no compliance program I've seen limits itself in that way. So firms use their compliance program to communicate more intangible goals like behaving ethically and how to stay within the ethos and spirit of the firm's stated values, things like that through their compliance programs. You mentioned an effective compliance program or effective self-policing as being a touchstone for what a regulator wants to see and, and what uh, is required if a company hopes to have some mitigation credit if issues do arise. What does it mean to have an effective compliance program? Is it hard to implement something that's effective and maybe epistemologically, how do you even know if your program is effective? Oh, that's probably the $100 million question. So um, what it means to have an effective compliance program depends, I think, at least in part on who you are asking. Mm -hmm. So the organizational sentencing guidelines state that an effective compliance program is one that is likely to prevent and detect misconduct. There's generally no expectation that firms will achieve perfect compliance, and that's 
pretty much in accordance with current law and economic scholarship. So we don't expect firms to achieve perfect compliance with legal and regulatory mandates, but they are expected to do their best to implement a compliance program that has the trainings, policies, and procedures necessary to prevent most misconduct. And to the extent that a firm fails in prevention, a program that will promptly detect when a failure has occurred. Because of this emphasis, when you look through firms' externally published compliance documents, you see them mention how their program has been structured to prevent and detect misconduct. I would add a bit more to this definition and and do so in the paper. Um, I think an effective compliance program must actually have four components. So prevention, detection, investigation, and remediation. The importance of remediation is mentioned in the organizational guidelines, and I'm sure that there are many people who would say that the detection function is meant to encompass investigation. But I think it is helpful to think of detection and and investigation as two separate steps. In part, this is because I have seen a variety of instances where misconduct was detected. And by that, I mean the organization was actually aware of the underlying misconduct, um, but then failed to investigate for a variety of reasons, some good, some bad. But the failure to investigate or investigate properly has led to many significant compliance failures. To the question of why it is difficult to know whether a compliance program is effective, uh, in part that is because compliance programs happen within firms and we don't have good data about the results of these programs. Mm -hmm. Uh, The anecdotal information we do have seems to suggest that not all firms are measuring outcomes of the compliance tools and procedures they put into place. And so if firms aren't even measuring the effectiveness of their programs, and if we don't have access to that, that is the $100 million question. How do we know if something is effective? There are a variety of people working in the space trying to come up with measurements, but it's a tricky thing to do. And and I suppose it's partly a a question of even if we are measuring outcomes, are we measuring the right outcomes? Are we measuring appropriately uh, if we right. look at our, our, our data for our ethics or compliance line and we, we see that there aren't any reports of misconduct, we might say, oh, that's great. Our compliance program's working. And uh, it might just be that things aren't being sourced to that ethics or compliance line. Right. Um, so Wells Fargo is a perfect example. So if you look at the, the report post-Wells Fargo scandal, the CEO knew. I mean, it made it all the way up to the board that there was a problem with fraudulent accounts. But it was such a low error rate that they saw it, they knew there was a problem, and then they said, oh, we don't have, it's fine. Like, this is such a low error rate, we don't have a problem. And they completely failed to properly assess the situation. Uh, so, yeah, so it's a question of, does, are the, is the right information getting up to where it needs to go? Or am I aggregating it in the right way? There's all sorts of different challenges to figuring out, to responding to this question. And sometimes people make mistakes. So as part of that challenge, you offer that an effective compliance program isn't isn't a paper program, as we sometimes hear that term used, or a check-the-box item, but rather it's it's a process. And you mentioned the, the four elements of a good compliance program uh, a moment ago, but could you discuss the process-oriented view and the framework that you propose in this article? Sure. So this paper is the second, and what looks like it's going to be a four-part series aimed at attempting to improve compliance programs within firms. So the goal of this particular paper is to provide a framework for engaging in a robust root cause analysis after a compliance failure has occurred. So often when a failure occurs, our response is to ask a pretty broad question. So why did the compliance failure occur? This paper, however, demonstrates that if we tweak that question a bit and instead ask at what stage or stages 
in the compliance process, did the failure occur? Um, we might come out with a different answer. So by doing this, the person charged with assessing the failure, hopefully, won't stop as soon as they find one answer to the question. Instead, they will keep going and as a result may discover more than one cause for the failure. The hope is by getting a more complete and fulsome root cause analysis, firms will be better equipped to make changes to their compliance programs going forward. In the article, you discuss four elements, the prevention, the detection, the investigation, and the remediation sides. The words seem a little bit uh, self-explanatory, but could you give us just some background on and kind of what goes in each stage or each step? Sure. So prevention would include things that you put in place so that misconduct doesn't occur at all. So that might be something like training, right? So I might train my workforce on why it is improper to make certain types of payments to foreign officials. So that might help me prevent. Detection is put in place to help the firm discover if someone isn't complying with the law or an industry standard. So in the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act scenario, you might say, okay, I'm going to put certain accounting controls in place that um, will help me flag when suspicious or irregular payments have gone through. Investigation would be, oh, I've flagged something, and now I'm going to look into it more completely. And investigation could be quick, but um, I think we're all familiar with the kind of broader internal investigations that are often conducted when a significant compliance failure is suspected. Um, And then the last stage would be remediation. So how do I respond to a failure that has occurred? So I've completed my investigation and decided that there is a failure and now I need to fix it. And so that could run the gamut of rehauling my compliance program. That could include voluntarily disclosing to the government. That could include if there were actual victims, paying out monetary relief, things of that nature. So those would be the four stages. The stages are not super concrete though. So Um, In the paper, I have a little kind of circular diagram. These stages can happen on a continuum. And if it's a simple compliance failure, these stages might happen pretty quickly Mm -hmm. um, for an experienced compliance officer. So by my mind, you would only need to implement this sort of question, way of framing your question around a root cause analysis if you're looking at a widespread or kind of significant compliance failure. Is this process dramatically different from what firms are doing now or from what regulators expect firms to be doing now? Or is it more of a subtle shift in in thinking that might be not that onerous to adopt this framework? So I think the answer is probably both. So I think that any good compliance officer would look at these four stages and think that they're pretty reasonable. Um, I actually, I wrote up a little piece for the Ethics and Compliance Professional Magazine, um, where I went through these four stages. And I I did receive some feedback from people in industry who said um, that that thought that it was spot on and and things of that nature. So to a certain extent, I think it is, it it could be subtle. But then again, to a certain extent, I think that outlining these components as four different stages is super important, Mm -hmm. in part because of the power of the incentives as outlined in the organizational sentencing guidelines. What you hear over and over is the importance of prevention and detection, prevention and detection. But some of the most significant scandals that I have seen in the past few years are not problems with prevention or detection. They are problems with investigation, where you knew something was going on and you didn't act on it. And that, by my mind, is in part a reflection 
of the of the messages coming from regulators and the DOJ. Firms are emphasizing what they were told to emphasize. And I do think it would be helpful to think more completely about these issues in a systematic way. To that point, you, you offer several case studies in the article to lay out and teach about some of the deficiencies that we might see in the compliance process today. And you, you kind of just alluded to that. How might the framework you describe address those issues? And what were some of the case studies that might illustrate that? Sure. So the case studies were meant to show how our initial reaction to why a a, a compliance failure occurred might have been either wrong or incomplete. So take, for example, uh, the sexual assault scandal at Baylor. When the original allegations came to light, I think it was pretty easy for Baylor and, and, and possibly even the Department of Education to point to the lack of a proper Title IX office and coordinator as the reason why so many problems occurred. So after everything comes to light, they instantaneously put in a Title IX office, hire a Title IX coordinator. But when you engage in a root cause analysis utilizing the process frame, the problems appear to be much more expansive as you find significant deficiencies at all stages of the compliance process, and importantly, even in the remediation stage. So even after Baylor put in the new Title IX office, there were lots of problems. And my opinion, after looking at everything that happened, is that Baylor just wasn't committed to compliance in the area. And so it didn't matter if it put in a Title IX office after it found out about the sexual assault allegations, because it wasn't committed to making the changes that were necessary throughout its organization. And as a result, the problem has lingered um, and continued and and kind of festered. And so it is important to kind of think completely about these different failures. Some of the other case studies I looked at in the paper tell us a little bit about certain other remediation efforts. So for example, after the mortgage foreclosure crisis, the OCC required something called an independent foreclosure review, and that was wildly unsuccessful for a variety of reasons and resulted in congressional hearings. But when you look at the independent foreclosure review after the fact and you look at what was supposed to be done and in what amount of time, it looks like maybe it wasn't that the banks or the consultants were engaged in kind of dragging their feet. Maybe the regulatory review that was required by the consent order was actually not reasonable, that maybe there was a failed regulatory design in that case. So my hope with the compliance process is just to give us another framework for thinking through these issues so that we don't make similar mistakes in the future. So if, let's say tomorrow, firms reorient their their thinking about compliance to really think about it in terms of this framework, what macro and micro effects might we expect to see um, at at the firm level and at the aggregate level? Are there costs or or different benefits that we should be aware of that this framework implies? So I'll be perfectly honest. At the macro level, I don't think we'll see anything. And I think that that's because we already don't know a lot about what's going on internally within firms. I had dinner with the VP of compliance at a Fortune 500 firm a few years ago. And I asked him how they decided how they were going to develop compliance for a particular subject matter area. And he said to me, well, we go out and we talk to non-competitors. And I kind of looked at him and he said, well, I can't talk to competitors because then I might be accused of an antitrust violation, right? So if he's scared to even talk to his competitors about, hey, what sort of compliance strategies have worked for you, it is unlikely that I, an academic, am going to get a lot of information about what's actually going on in terms of a macro level. So at a micro level, my hypothesis is that 
by tweaking these sorts of questions so that we are more systematic about thinking through compliance failures, you might just end up with more effective responses to these failures. If you think you have a prevention problem and you fix that, but really you had a prevention and an investigation problem, that investigation problem is going to rear its head again because you haven't fixed it. And so at the micro level, my hope is that firms will utilize this tool going forward. So that the paper is really meant for compliant folks in firms. That said, I do think the paper could be helpful to regulators who are trying to assess the effectiveness of remediation efforts at firms. So it is often the case that even if you don't impose something like a monitorship, you may a regulator may require some reports after the fact, after, the, after let's say, a, a company has entered into a settlement with a regulator. They might require some subsequent reporting about how their mediation effort is going. It is theoretically possible that this sort of framework could assist a regulator in their efforts in deciding whether or not the remediation effort is going well or not. Veronica, what takeaways uh, from this article would you like other academics or people listening from industry or regulators who might be listening to take away from this paper? Sure. So for people within industry, I really want them to take away the general prompt and question I've put forward, which is, might it be more effective to engage in a robust root cause analysis to ask at what stage did the failures occur as opposed to what was the compliance failure? I do think how we frame and ask questions can often be um, determinative of the outcomes we generate. And so by asking a more precise question, I think you just get, end up with more complete information. For regulators, I think one of the things I would like them to take away is whether it makes sense to hammer into firms the importance of prevention and detection without similarly focusing on investigation and remediation. So you do see a reference to remediation in the organizational sentencing guidelines, and there are some speeches by high-level officials where they mention remediation. Um, But I think many people take investigation for granted, right? So we all know that if there's a big scandal, you conduct an internal investigation. But that stage is super important and can result in mistakes in our evaluation of why something occurred, but it can also result in mistakes in how widespread something might have been. And so I really do think that for regulators, it would be great if they spent some more time emphasizing what is necessary out of an investigative process. And then for academics, you know, within law, compliance is a relatively new field. And as we are thinking through some limiting principles for compliance as a field, I think this paper helps contribute to this effort. So one of the questions I often got when I was presenting this paper is whether you really could put this compliance framework across types of organizations, so nonprofit private, public. And so I utilize examples from all of these areas in the paper, and I think you really can. If compliance is its own discrete field, then it's going to need its own discrete limiting principles that can be utilized across subject matter areas. So there are a variety of people who know a lot about, say, environmental compliance or healthcare compliance. But if compliance is going to be its own field, we need meta-theoretical principles that we can apply across those subject areas. And this paper is part of that more general effort to help create some boundaries for the field. 
Our guest today has been Veronica Root Martinez, professor of law at the Notre Dame Law School, where she is the inaugural director of the Program on Ethics, Compliance, and Inclusion. We've discussed her recent article, The Compliance Process, which was recently published in the Indiana Law Journal. I'll include a link to that article in the show notes for today's episode. Veronica, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.